Hello and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies. I am Miss Melmoy. And I am Mr. Craigers. And this is episode 19, We Discerned. Um, the theme this week is award-winning horror films, specifically in honor of the Oscars, coming up next weekend. Uh, but specifically, we are going to be looking at um, 1993's... Was it 93? 92. What? Well, it won in the year 92. 91? It won. The early 90s winner, (laughs) um, (laughs) Silence of the Lambs. Um, And uh, this is fitting because, A, the Oscars. B, genre films, specifically horror, tend to not be award winners. So it was a big deal. Um, And... We're, yeah, I mean, we're going to name drop a few of them, I guess. Talk about some that were uh, also nominated in their time of stuff to check out if you haven't already. And then just have a bit of a Silence of the Lambs discussion. Anyone who's a Hannibal fan um, or any other adaptation of those books will will enjoy. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So when, mm-hmm. I, when I think of award-winning horror films, the first one that... Or like critically acclaimed even horror films the first thing that comes to mind for me is the exorcist because um, mm-hmm. that was like the big the big talk of the town definitely a go-to yeah i feel like just as you know it's still considered by many many people today not just horror people but film people to be the best horror movie ever made um and it has all the audience audience praise and critic praise and you know everybody loved it it's never been remade technically you know they did like the temporary prequel and the tv show and it's interesting uh, because my mom um refuses to watch it and when i told her once that i was gonna like i found this old copy of the book the book the exorcist in this used bookstore that was by um where craig and i went to college um, and I was going to buy it and my mom was like, you're not bringing that in my house. <laughs> um, cause the exorcist still really, really scares people. Um, and it's, Definitely. and it, you know, it, it kind of burgeoned that whole decade of, um, demonic child horror, Rosemary's baby followed shortly after the omen or maybe the omen came first. I'm not sure. Um, Rosemary's baby was before, was before the omen was yeah, okay. Um, so it was part of that trend then. It was kind of like the slashers of the 70s or the slashers of the 80s where the demonic babies of the 90s were the mid-2000s um, found footage and on and on. Um, and uh, the funny thing is, is like, it's low-key based on a true story. Um, ish. Ish. Yeah. Uh, basically on this account of this um, John Doe kid who underwent an exorcism in St. Louis, Missouri, and it was the priest's account of the exorcism that gave the inspiration for the book that uh, was adapted into the the film. To the film. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I've always wanted to... you know, if you don't know The Exorcist, it takes place in Georgetown, mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C. And <laughs> I lived here for almost a year and a half now, and I haven't gone to see The Stairs. You've been in Georgetown, too, I think, haven't you? Uh, I know. <laughs> and like I say, 
going to do it every time I'm over there. Mr. Amick and I, I was like, yeah, we should go see the stairs. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it. And then we never do. Oh. And, and Maybe know, we'll do that nice. next weekend. Maybe we'll go see the stairs. Just going to say, because Miss Mel is coming to visit me for the Oscar weekend, and we'll that could be a nice weekend. little field trip we could all take. Yeah, we could go see the stairs, take some pics. Push our friend Jamie, push our down, friend the Jamie down the stairs, <coughs> a la the end of the movie. Um, yeah. Sorry. Jumps out I mean, the window. Are, someone's got to fall down. Someone's got to jump out a window and fall down. Um, but yeah, Jamie and... Um, of our group. It's interesting because I was talking to somebody the other day because they were like, what horror films, like they wanted to get into horror. Um, a friend of mine was like, what horror films would you recommend and that sort of thing. And I was listing off. Like when we did our yeah. show for Annie and Brad. Yeah, Annie and Brad. Where are you guys? Starter pack. Um, <laughs> but basically I was saying to her, The Exorcist is kind of the place where a lot of things today come from. Like if you look at all of James Wan's stuff, like it's total like post exorcist um, filmmaking, like particularly the conjuring, like the one criticism that it got. And it wasn't, it depends on who you ask. Cause it wasn't even, some people liked that it did this. Some people said it kind of detracted from the film, but it was the fact that it was basically like, you know, the exorcist 2.0. It was like a modern day kind of take on the way the exorcist put together a horror film where it was all about the human interaction, the human element, the, the, character narrative on top of this this scary scary thing because you know horror is never about what it seems to be about um and the exorcist was one of the first movies i think really did that in a dramatic and obvious way um mm -hmm. you know because it was all about father father Karras's crisis of faith and you know the fact that he he was going through all these things and he had to come to terms with his own emotional stuff and his own um, faith and mental situation and mental world in order to, you know, save this little girl. Um, and you see that kind of echoed in the conjuring with the Warrens and um, the family they're helping. And in the, the sequel conjuring Two, it shows up there as well. So. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's so incredibly influential. Yeah. Um, coming on, you know, what 40 year 40 almost 50 years yeah yeah since a, since it was released a long time ago yeah um um and yeah so um for the for for the oscars that year the 40 it was the 46 oscars for um the best films of 1973 the exorcist received 10 academy award nominations including Best Picture, Best Actress uh, for Ellen Bernstein, Supporting Actor for Jason Miller, Supporting Actress for Linda Blair, Best Director, Adapted Screenplay, Cinematography, Film Editing, Production Design, and Sound Mixing. It won two of those Oscars for Sound Mixing and for uh, Best Adapted Screenplay. And it made history because it became the first horror film to be nominated for best picture in the Academy's history. Yay. The exorcist. Yay. The exorcist. <clears throat> um, yeah. The exorcist. And I would say all 10 of those nominations were very well deserved. Yeah. No, it's such a good film to watch and it's very, it's slow burn scary. It's like the original slow burn scary film. 
Um, yeah. Because I feel like there's this thing in horror where you always start out the first 15 minutes, you're like, this is chill, it's normal, like, we're having a good time, like, whatever, these people have normal lives, and then, like, you know, disaster strikes. Um, with The Exorcist, it, like, you know, you get that, and then it's, like, just this really slow burn into um, into the scary stuff later. Spider walk scene. The spooks. The spooks. Um, the spooks. Yeah. You got one you want to uh, throw out there? Uh, well, okay. So, The Exorcist was was the first horror film to be nominated for Best Picture, right? Uh-huh. But um, just two years later, Jaws was also nominated for Best Picture. Um, as well as for best editing, best score and best sound. And I mean, when you think of Jaws, what do you think of immediately? So I would say those nominations are pretty on point. It did win, um, best, all the, the three technical awards it won for editing sound and score. It obviously did not win for best picture that year. It, um, 75 went to one flew over the cuckoo's nest, which, um, I'm fine with yeah. and is horrifying. It's own. I was going to say it's its, it's own little version of a horror film. It's own little version of a horror film. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Jaws and Jaws was like but, the big, um, um, block, the first blockbuster, the first summer blockbuster as well. Yeah. So that was kind of really, not only was it another horror film, um, that was nominated for Best Picture. But, yeah, you're right. It was a, the first blockbuster yeah. um, in the history of, of Hollywood and the first blockbuster to be nominated for Best Picture. Um, now, so much when we think of these kind of event movies that Jaws was, um, they will probably never see a Best Picture nomination. Yeah. Movies like... <laughs> Like superhero movies. Yeah, right? like the Avengers, pretty, Man of Steel. Avengers, yeah. They're just going to hang out pretty much in the technical awards. Well, and that was um, the um, big <clears throat> argument with Harry Potter and how Deathly Hallows Part 2, they wanted to see some kind of, like, at least, you know, farewell nominations for it. Um, and it basically, once again, got all of its technical nominations and nothing else. So. Yeah. And that's yeah. the thing. It's, and That's... Well, no, oh no, sorry, I was just gonna no, say it's horror and, and the superhero and the big spectacle movie can kind of be in the same boat, I think, so much in that they're overlooked and when they are acknowledged by the Academy, it's it's just for the technical awards. And I feel like the one of the biggest examples of the Academy kind of breaking out of that, okay, I'm gonna give the technical awards to these genre movies was Return of the King, which swept its year at the Oscars and won Best Picture, mm-hmm. um, which was insane. Um, because it was the, totally. the third movie in a trilogy. It was part of a franchise. It wasn't even the first movie, and it was fantasy. Like, and it won every single award it was it was nominated for. Um, so sometimes you you know these things do happen. Um, it's not often, and it does not really happen that much with horror. Because I mean, this year we've got Arrival, which is sci-fi which is nominated last year, Mad Max, actually I think took home the most Oscars that night but didn't win Best Picture, and that's like a total, I don't even know what to categorize that movie. Um, 
dystopian yeah, action film. Dystopian sci-fi sort of. Well, here's here's okay. So let's talk about the crossover with horror and sci-fi, but yes. because yeah, um, mm. this this is a good segue to talk about Alien. Yes, um, Alien was nominated for. Uh, um, on ours. Uh, so was Aliens. Uh, Alien Aliens. 3 even was nominated for yeah. <laughs> Best Visual Effects. But um, for Aliens, 1986, um, it won for Visual Effects and Sound Editing. But it was also nominated for Music, Score, Film Editing, Art Direction, and Sigourney Weaver received a Best Actress nomination. Um mm-hmm which was the first time for a sci-fi slash horror role got, got nominated. Yeah. Uh, so that, that was pretty groundbreaking for, for <clears throat> that only, time. So then that's such an interesting well movie Alien. because like that shows up um, in horror marathons, like in October, people will play Alien. They will play Aliens at the same time. It's such like a total sci-fi film, and it's interesting because it's basically like they took a creature feature and put it in space. Um, is how I would describe a lot of yeah. Alien, um, which is so so unique. Yeah, well, I love, and that's I love how Alien. that's what it was pitched. Yeah, how, basically how it was pitched as like Jaws. Yeah. Um, and it is Jaws in space. Um, so, and I remember as a kid going to Disney World on that movie ride. It was always so scary to go through the alien portion, um, where you're on like the Nostromo and stuff, and like the alien comes down slowly, but God, I was still it scared. Scarred the shit out of people. Yeah, no, and that yeah, and like like alien and aliens, aliens, such a uh, <laughs> such a good. Um, collection of movies um i recently saw the preview for the new alien movie the i guess their response to not doing prometheus 2 um alien what is yeah. it alien, alien covenant covenant um i forget what movie i saw that with but so that's the thing we're still <laughs> alien alien versus predator um alien versus predator requiem i think was one is that what it was called um yeah that but, was a sequel and it's and it sucks because i never want to give um james cameron credit for anything but aliens is really really good <laughs> it is and i do have to concede that to him even though i don't like it yeah um um prometheus was actually nominated for best visual effects so, okay, interesting little aside there then for Prometheus. Another sci-fi this, horror. This came up um, Gem. in, uh, I was recently watching the Dune documentary about um, the unmade version of Dune by um, Alejandro Jabrowski. 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 And it was talking to the guy who did all of the stuff for Alien and um, the designs of the Xenomorph was on his original production team for Dune to design um, a lot of the visuals. And in the um, sort of sketchbooks and early designs, you see these designs for a planet. 
that looks a lot like the planet that Prometheus takes place on. Like a lot of the visuals in that are totally right out of their designs for the Harkonnen planet in Dune. Um, which it's a really good documentary if you want to watch it because it basically shows you how all film, like a lot of action films, a lot of sci-fi films, um, post like 1978 basically picked and chose their um, little things from this original um, treatment and like um, pitch book for um, the Dune adaptation. And Prometheus is definitely one of them that, that took quite a few leafs. Um, from that book, literally. Um, but yeah. Uh, I this is, I wanted Prometheus to be good. I so wanted it to be good. And it was such garbage. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, Alien in, is a good way I, for, you know, sort of cross-genre people who maybe aren't super into horror but can do sci-fi. It's a good way to kind of ease yourself into it. Um, and I suppose vice versa. Um, and it's just a really well done film. Yeah. I would say it's a perfect movie, actually. Yes. Is it perfect or one of our many perfect or near perfect films? <laughs> perfect or near perfect <laughs> movies. Um, yes. Yeah, no, yeah. it's so, it's so great. And now, um, Eleven has some, uh, Ripley hair on the cover of, um, yeah. of the Entertainment Weekly magazine. Um, Entertainment Weekly. I have it right here. Not that any of the listeners can see it, but <laughs> pick up this month's copy of Entertainment Weekly, and you will you will have a visual. Yeah, um, she's You'll looking have visual. She's looking very she's Ripley. Looking great. <laughs> uh, for those of you who are Stranger yeah. Stranger Things fans. Yeah, which how cool is it? Like you know, Ripley is possibly the greatest. You know, fine. Final girl, horror yeah. heroine, um, scream queen, whatever. And for Sigourney Weaver to have gotten the best actress nomination for that role for Aliens is like, if you're a true horror fan, that like that's something that beats very deeply in your heart yeah. and that you're you're proud of almost. Yeah. Still to this day to so. see a, a final girl getting getting some Oscar nods. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's pretty bad. And horror, I mean has been kinder to um, female performers. Yeah. Interestingly, when it comes to the Oscars. Um, Sigourney Weaver obviously was nominated for playing Ripley. Um, Mia Farrow was nominated for her role in Rosemary's Baby. Um, she actually won the Oscar. Mm. At, um, so that was, um, that was, that was a big deal. Um, Kathy Bates also won, of course, for playing Annie Wilkes in Misery. She won Best Actress in 1990. Um, that was a big deal. Um, but, uh... You consider, I guess, the, um, Monster a kind of serial killer flick that, you know, and, um, Shirley Theron won oh, yeah. as well for, Shirley um... Theron. Yeah. So... Eileen Warner's, yeah. 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 Um, the... Interestingly, though, the very first Oscar ever given to anybody involved with a horror movie was given to Frederick March in 1931. He won Best Actor for playing Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde mm -hmm. in the original Universal 
uh, classic of obviously the same. Um, Yeah, that's interesting. You know, Uh, and it's like there will. It's interesting because it's like it's an adaptation of you know, and it's a classic. Um, So there are ways I think to kind of like game the system (laughs) when it comes to the Oscars, right? Um, When you're a, a a genre horror film. Absolutely. I mean, like, that was the 1930s, so yeah, it can be done. It yeah. can be done. And there, and in a way, I think there was, it was almost, it was easier to get horror films acknowledged back then because yeah. they were so, so popular and they were doing so many, Yeah, they were at the forefront of so many of the big Remember movements the in film. What if the blob? What if the blob? Because, you know, in the late 30s and the early 40s, all those big, like, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Invisible Man, um, Phantom of the Opera, the 40s one, not the original, those were all getting nominated for Oscars. Um, And they were all casting, like, really, like, legacy, people who became legacy actors or who were already, like, big legacy actors at the time as well. Um, Because now horror is known for casting no names and starting careers for people because they start out in these bit horror parts. Whereas back in the day, it was like you got these great horror actors to to be in your films. And that was that was part of the draw that was like what made them prestigious in a way. Um, So it's interesting the way it's kind of, it's almost like, yeah. it sounds a little bit harsh, I guess, to say like the respect for horror has gone down, but I think that's definitely what's happened. And I don't, <clears throat> it's a two-way street, I feel like, because it's both, you know, on the Academy's end, on the audience's end, but it's also because it's like a feedback loop, because then they're easy to make, they're cheap to make, so they started making them cheap and easy because people were so easily receiving them, but not really giving them much credit and then because that was happening they were like oh we can make these cheap and dirty and put them out like you know one sequel a year and that sort of thing so it's an interesting right phenomenon yeah i know i feel like it kind of like come comes in waves and stuff or whatever because like that sort of respect and like cluster of nominations from the 30s and 40s totally like tapered off when you got yeah. to the 50s and stuff or whatever and then um the oscars for 1960 psycho was given four nominations mm-hmm. then two years later whatever happened to baby jane got a bunch of nominations um baby davis was nominated for best actress um if, if you want to know the story behind that movie um ryan murphy will be telling us all about it in his new series feud Gregory Gregory Peck was um, in the original The Omen. Yeah, great, yeah. great actor. Great actor, great um, actor. Um, he no wait, I don't think he was nominated. I, the I Omen was going to ask nominated. you. The Omen was nominated. I The Omen was nominated and it won for best score, I believe. Yeah, I thought. Well, I guess maybe he was nominated. Um, I don't know. Yeah, but that kind of like there was that like Hitchcock sort of brought some. Yeah. Academy respect back with Psycho. I mean, he didn't do whatever happened to Baby Jane, but that happened. The Birds was nominated. Yeah. Then had we've already talked about Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist in the early 70s. Um, Jaws and The Omen kept it strong in the mid-70s. Alien and um, Animated Horror 70s. And then a little bit of tapering in the 80s until you got to Aliens again and American Werewolf in London, 
which yeah. actually won the inaugural Best uh, Makeup Award nice. in 1981. So um, props to that. I fucking love that movie. Yeah. And um, I think if you look at it, the 80s is kind of where horror films started to become franchise bait, started to become sort of like cheaper films to make. Um, started casting these no names like Johnny Depp's first role ever was in Nightmare on Elm Street um right like there's so like tons of actors if you go on their internet movie database pages like their first like five films like somewhere in there is like a horror film um and that's kind of Leonardo DiCaprio yeah Critters 3 and I think that's yeah. kind of where it started in the 80s when the slasher was born and they were casting all these like teenage kids who grew up to become you know the actors that they became but it just became the way to make horror films because then in the 90s all you saw basically it was all um direct to video like sequels to 80s horror films until scream came along and then um i know what you did last summer kind of um perked it back up and obviously we've talked about the blair witch and how that was such a huge phenomenon when it came out and it kind of brought attention back to um making horror films and then we have yeah found footage becomes the slasher of the the early 2000s basically right um and that's interesting um and then you think about it because it's kind of cool that some of these big name stars who started off in horror a couple of them even circled back mm -hmm. in terms of horror and the oscars uh johnny depp was nominated for playing sweeney todd yeah, yeah. For best for best actor, um, Sweeney Todd itself won that year for best art direction, and it was nominated for a couple other technical awards too. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's kind of cool that he was back to them roots. Nominated for best actor, yeah, for for playing another horror role, which that's how he got started, yeah. which is which is kind of cool. Um, Yeah. Um, other, other, yeah, so let's talk about the 90s then. Yeah. Because, bar, okay, so barring, we'll get to Silence of the Lambs in a minute. That obviously let a lot of people know that horror can be cinematic. That think, horror films yeah. can be good films. Yeah, that yeah. can be cinematic, they can be beautiful. Um, just a year after Silence of the Lambs, swept uh you had bram stoker's dracula in 1982 yes, that is on netflix if you want to if you want to enjoy yes. that <laughs> and um oh yeah historically yeah, considered one of the worst yeah accents. worst miscasts in the form of um keanu reeves is uh oh it's so bad as, uh, it's so, so bad but it, but but again beautiful very cinematic yeah. Very pretty no, I love at. watching it, and it's like totally my ultimate version of of Dracula in terms of the mood and the colors and the cinematography. Like it's totally what you expect when you want to watch Dracula. Something it's very gothic, very Eastern European wilderness, um, and it's great. Um, and they acknowledged for that. They they got four technical awards. Uh, costume, sound editing, makeup, and art direction, and they won. Costume, sound, and makeup. Um, and you can see why. Yeah. Uh, um, the next year, 
right after that, you if you count it as horror, you could count it as a creature feature or a monster film, Jurassic Park. Yeah. Which was for three technical awards, and it won them all. Yeah. That kind of, you know, obviously it falls in the same boat as Jaws for obvious reasons, but um, that, you know, again, it shows up as well, like, on, like, Horror October um, Marathon, someone will usually put at least oh, one yeah. Jurassic Park in there. Um, because it's, you know, it's, it's a creature feature, uh, survival film, so. Absolutely. Again, like, when you Absolutely. blur the genres, sometimes you get more, I feel like, success. Yeah, or if, um, or if you go classic, like we were talking yeah. about before, Bram yeah. Stoker's Dracula, um, 1994, Interview with the Vampire was nominated for a couple awards. Oh, um, you know, very, very classical looking, yeah. very traditional cinema um occasionally there there was uh, some breakouts i mean seven was nominated it didn't win anything um then you got to the end of the 90s and there were two big i think there to talk about and that is sleepy hollow and the sixth sense <laughs> sleepy hollow <laughs> yeah which actually won an award that year best let me see uh costume uh and then the sixth sense which was nominated for six awards hey. and big big awards too um did not win anything <sighs> poor poor m night um yeah yeah so there, you know, it's like these little moments where something kind of shines through and people are forced to acknowledge that there are good movies out there besides movies about making movies and, you know, the big <laughs> cinematic darling films that um, the Academy loves. But the, the film that finally broke that glass ceiling, I suppose, if you want to put it that way, was Silence of the Lambs because it won Best Picture the year it was nominated. Um, so I guess we can start talking about that one. Sure. I guess that is a good segue. 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 <laughs> All right. So. Hello, Clarice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was it. He mean, was nominated for, um, best actor for 13 minutes yeah. of screen time. 13 minutes of screen time. The shortest role to ever be nominated and win an Oscar. Yeah. Shortest amount of screen time, you know, for the yeah. role. Yeah, and it's close to our hearts because they filmed a good portion of it on our campus. <laughs> um, yeah. In Soldiers and Sailors. Um, and just, think, like, if you've seen the movie, when you heard me say, hello, Clarice, just now, like, what more do you need to, to just... Yeah. You're you're back. You're back in that world, you know, like that that opening shot where she's jogging through like Quantico or whatever and the music's playing yeah. in the woods. Um and that um that scene the 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 night vision scene Oh which my gosh. totally oh my was gosh. echoed in um Don't Breathe. That totally that sequence in Don't Breathe yeah. would not have happened if it didn't happen first in Silence of the Lambs. Um they were nodding to that for sure. Yeah. Um, just the, the like, and it's, because you look at it, you can say it's a mystery, it's a crime movie, it's a psychological thriller, it's a horror film. Like, there's so many different hats it wears 
um, without tripping over itself. Like you're never confused. Like, how am I supposed to view this? Like what, you know, like, how do I look at this? How am I supposed to feel about it? Like, you just know that you have this, this silence of the lambs feeling, you know, it's just so scary. I remember when I was a kid, um, my sister had a copy of it on VHS in her bedroom. Um, and I found it one day when I was, you know, being a dick and going in her bedroom when she wasn't home. Cause that's what younger <laughs> siblings do. Um, and I remember seeing like, I, for the, I like just have this very, uh, visceral memory of seeing for the first time the, um, the cover with the bee or the butterfly or whatever it is. The, the butterfly. Moth, yeah. Um, over her mouth. And moth, stuff. Yeah. Um, and I was like, so freaked out by it. It's a, it's a freaky cover. Yeah. I know. I, rem I remember walking through like blockbusters and stuff all, and always seeing it. And it's so, it's perfect because it's, it, it's like a perfect poster because it captures the essence of the movie. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's eerie and it's beautiful and you're really drawn to it, but it's totally masturbating in like a way you can't quite explain. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that's because I think they even put like a little bit of a superimposed in the design of the moth. There's like a skull or something like in its mm -hmm. in its design. As well, well. And her eyes are like red yeah. and, and like the rest of its pale. grayscale, like the the rest of the yeah. yeah. No, it's so it's so and like even the title um, and the way it comes up and the way that he discusses, you know, he's like the screaming of the lambs, the silence of the like the, that whole monologue is so eerie like it's just a total nod to how unsettling Hannibal Lecter is like this movie is obviously mm -hmm. about um for those of you who don't know basically um this young FBI recruit yeah, I guess we should yeah like, we should tell you like what the movie is about technically <laughs> talk about the uh, um so this FBI specifics re first. recruit is pulled out of like the academy um She's like apparently like she's in training. Yeah. yeah, she's in training. She's a little bit has a little bit of trouble in training. Um, she you know gets dinged points sometimes for being a little too impulsive. I guess when she when she busts in on these um, you know drills or what have you. Um, but she gets pulled from this to work on an assignment because um, there is a serial killer kidnapper who's been taking women in an area, and he ends up kidnapping a senator's daughter. So um, it becomes really, really serious. And the FBI brings her in to interview a, another serial killer who is in prison for life, um, like in the criminally insane section of the, like a, it's a literal dungeon that they're keeping him in. Um, yeah. But she's called in to interview him to tr kind of basically pick his brain to see if he'll consult on trying to figure out who this serial killer is based on his own experiences. Um, and she has a series of interviews with this guy and they're just the most unsettling conversations, um, ever. Like, it's insane. Um, and basically they do end up in the end catching this guy through a series of, you know, cat and mouse games, chasing him down, hunting down clues, what have you. That's kind of where the crime thing comes in. Um, but it's just like... The the crux and the meat of the movie is these conversations between Clarice and and Hannibal Lecter. Um, Lecter. Yeah. Which because you're right because who was a cannibal by the way if you didn't know bring that me right. <laughs> the nickname Hannibal the Cannibal because yes. um, uh, Silence of the Lambs is actually this technically the second 
um, yeah. film in the Hannibal Lecter franchise following Manhunter. It's the Red um, Dragon, right? Which was remade as Red Dragon. Yeah, yeah. Red Dragon. Um, um, and that tells the story of how he gets captured. But um, because as much as the, the uh, story as it were on the surface is about Clarice's hunt for Buffalo Bill, um, the other serial killer that they want help them catch. Um, it's really about Clarice's search for her own identity mm-hmm. and the awesome sort of pull between the two yeah. father figures she has Hannibal Lecter and uh, Jack Crawford, the head of her, FBI unit. Yeah. Both of them are trying like trying to substitute um the law enforcement father that she lost to a violent crime from her childhood. And so she's on this sort of like quest of self-discovery, right? Mm-hmm. And that's mirrored with Buffalo Bill. Yeah. And his sort of twisted and delusional, he's trying to choose his own destiny as well. Will he remain male as he was biologically born or does he become female to fulfill what we're believed to be as his true gender, psychologically speaking? It's totally fascinating. And it's totally fascinating in the way that those two stories converge in that basement yeah with the night vision when it comes to that's such an amazing sequence though when they're knocking on the door and she's going into the house and they totally they totally pull a fast one on you um won't they do, it's brilliant they won't jonathan say, yeah. director that is such a great move yeah um because when you realize that who, you've been duped who is where and when who is and where you just it's so much dread. You're just like, oh, oh no, oh, no, <laughs> like run, Jody Foster, run <laughs> out of the house. Um, Which I just have to say, super quickly, Jody Foster is one of um, my favorite lesbians. <laughs> <laughs> you know, correct. You are correct. Um, the yeah, uh, but. <laughs> Okay, FBI, so, FBI so agent, lesbian, Jodie Foster, hunting down serial killers. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. And so, and so she was nominated and she won um, the Best Actress Award for playing Clarice Starling. And that's really awesome. You know, we were talking about Sigourney Weaver and Mia Farrow and Kathy Bates. And, and Clarice is kind of a really, a bit of an unsung horror heroine. Yeah. Um, but she's, she's awesome. She's ambitious. She's very sincere. In her training. Oh my goodness. And she, she, yeah. she is. She wants to fit into the male dominated world of the FBI. Yeah. And that's like but, so the opening scene where she's doing the drill and she gets like docked points or what have you for not checking her corners or what have you. But they're like, check your shit, rookie or whatever. And then they say to her male counterpart, they were like, good job. Like, you know, and you just get this immediate sense that she's, you know, she's this tiny, what? It's Jodie Foster. So she's this tiny little woman right. um, who. <laughs> yeah you know, is surrounded by these FBI buff guys sent in to talk to a psychotic serial killer. Um, and the scene where she's going down into the dungeon to go speak with him and, like, the mental prep you see, like, just going through um, her walk down there and walking past the other inmates. Um, I know that alone is, like, yeah. really brilliant. Yeah, it's just so good. Um, and Jodie Foster does so well. Um, she does. She plays 
she plays that like she plays so well off of Anthony Hopkins in yeah. particular um and that because they have such a weird they have such a strange chemistry dynamic. yeah yeah, and it's so complex and it's so engrossing. And for it's, it's like so Freudian because you're looking at it, you're like, okay, he's a father figure to her, a really fucked up, awful father figure to her. At the same time, there is like always that sort of like sexual energy as well, where it's like, because there was that post on Tumblr where they were like, Clarice and um, and uh, Hannibal are in a less abusive relationship than Christian Grey and Anastasia. Um, <laughs> but um, there's just such a... It's like Phantom of the... It's like the Phantom and Christine kind of. Like, um, it's... Yes. It's like a That's total... That's interesting. It's like a total that thing where you're blending the mentor figure, the father figure that, that, that you've lost, the kind of search for family and that sort of thing, and somebody to you know, be a protective force, what have you, with, you know, weird attraction, um, you know, sexual things, that sort of thing. Um, it doesn't come up too blatantly that part as it does in Phantom of the Opera. But it's like, you get that energy from their conversations and the way they have just crazy intense eye contact through, um, you know, his, his cage that he's in. And I love the bit at the end. That's when he, super interesting. When he breaks out and he's like very much Clarice is like, she's, she's like, no, he will not come after me. That's not something he would do. Cause her friend is like, aren't right. you worried that he's going to find you and like come, you know, kill you. And she's like, no, I can't explain it, but he won't. Um, and it's like, it's just so great. And that's part of the end when he gets away and he's talking to her and stuff. It's like, they have such a crazy weird relationship. Mm hmm. That's so interesting to think of Hannibal Lecter as the, like a contemporary successor to the Phantom. Yeah, totally. Because now I'm thinking of so many parallels. Yes. You know, the genius, the genius in the dark, the madman, mm -hmm. you know. In a literal dungeon in the basement in of a literal dungeon, prison. Crushed by the weight of his own genius, driven to insanity. Yeah. Um, you Draw, he draws all those pictures of her. The mask. Yeah. Right, yeah. drawing the pictures, wearing a mask at a certain point or whatever. Um, sort of bringing a protege, uh, a prodigy, down into a world of darkness. Yeah. Um, manipulating them and stuff or whatever. Because, okay, like, Crawford is manipulating Clarice too. Yes. He's using her to experiment with Lecter. Yeah, Lecter is using Clarice to get small taste of freedom in exchange for helping on the Buffalo Bill case, but it's Lecter, who's clearly a monster that mm -hmm. befriends Clarice. Yeah, um, I mean, he's digging into her psyche like ruthlessly at certain points, but he's also treating her more honestly and yeah on e equal terms than her father <laughs> or Crawford ever did. And it's their first meeting is so interesting because he refuses to help her. He refuses to give her information. As she's leaving, she gets assaulted by one of the other inmates, and that pisses him off. And he says, "Okay, I'll help you." And then that inmate ends up like dead the next day. Um, and even the psychology of that is so because he hates people who are rude, and he he because um, that's the thing in Hannibal is that he eats rude people. The TV show. Um, you know, he Which is a brilliant and beautiful TV show, by the way. Yes, it's so good. Um, you don't want to like eat dinner while you're watching it though. Um, no. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, that's the thing is, is like he has this psychology where it's like he considers people his equal or 
potential to be his equal. And he's like weirdly derangedly protective of that in a, in a strange way. Like it's not affection. He, you know, he doesn't have empathy or any of that sort of thing, but he does, you know, feel the need to react when things he, he views are rude or offensive or someone he considers to be his equal um, is treated in a specific way. And there are a few people that he does that he does consider to be his equal. Um, by the end of the movie, I think, you know, the idea is that Clarice is one of them because he's basically trained her to be that person through all their conversations uh, and the way he talks to her and they, they dig around in the brain. And how and haunting is it, even right up into the end, when you're watching it, and you you don't know what his intentions are with mm-hmm. her. Yeah. Um. You know, like he's probing into her psyche. He's probing into her past. He's he's making her, you know, come to all these uncomfortable realizations and confrontations with herself and and her her, her past and her career and stuff or whatever. And then when he escapes, there's this question of like. What's she gonna do? Like, is she, is she in danger? Yeah. Like, what? I mean, he he's, he eats people. He's a psycho. Yeah, like, and he clearly has a plan when he gets out because he like jacks a car and does all these things. Yeah. Like, and then you know, and that's what it does come up. It was like, do you think he's going to come after you? And she's like, I, you know, he'd consider it rude. Um, yes, and then it's kind of when when she says that, and when he calls her at the end, and and then it's kind of like this really just. Dis- disturbing but sort of like oh yeah obviously he's not gonna come after her yeah like there's no way and then you realize that you understand the relationship and then you the viewer are like like disturbed with yourself you know what i mean yeah that's yeah and that's the thing is is like to understand the relationship is to have a certain amount of empathy with the relationship which is like where you kind of get disturbed with yourself because it's like this strange Freudian relationship and it's like no I know he's not going to come after her they have you know an understanding um and she won't hunt him down either um and it's this strange thing where you're like I buy it um and I weirdly support it and that is <laughs> not a correct way to respond to this situation but I don't know what else to do um it's and it's just so well done um with so like again Anthony Hopkins is on screen for 13 minutes out of this two and a half hour movie however long it is um and you get all of that, like this, like yes, the search for Buffalo Bill, what have you. But the entire, like when people think of Silence of the Lambs, they think of the converse, the scenes of Clarice sitting in her chair across from Lecter's, um, like fishbowl glass cell, glass yeah. cell um, and him sitting there just kind of staring at her while they talk. Um, because a lot of the times, yeah, he just he kind of has this dead stare at her. He's got no emotion on his face whatsoever. Um, and it's just so, it's like such, like, it's such a movie about, like, energy, I feel like. Like, just total creepy mood energy. Um, so you can see why it won Best Picture. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you can see why they won their respective yeah. Best Acting yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, Same year, Beauty and the Beast was nominated for Best Picture. Yes, it along was. with this. A Disney film was nominated for the first time. Well, not a Disney film, but an animated. An animated film was also nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> so you can. It was a history-making Oscars it in was 1991. A strange year. It was. It was a wild year in 1991. 
Yeah. So, so, okay. So we've got Clarice and her sort of struggle for identity. Is she, will she be the child of, you know, Jack Crawford or, or, or Hannibal Lecter, or will she stand independent on her own? Um, and then you've got Buffalo Bill who is hunting for his identity in a very different, much more sinister way. A much more literal way. Yes. Because he believes that his identity hinges on skin, not on his soul. And that if he wears the skin of a woman, he will be perceived as one. Mm -hmm. That's his delusion. So this more shallow definition of self is what is driving his character throughout the movie. And and of course this is all unraveled as being a sham. It can't hide the true ugliness of himself, which is the inside. Yeah. And so he is really, really fascinating. There's lots of fascinating things out there to read about his character. Um, Lots of questions of, is he self-loathing, homosexual who by sort of taking on a trans identity hopes to eradicate his homosexuality. Uh Um, Like if he is woman, his desire to be with men will become natural. It's there's a lot of complex stuff going on with him. Um, And it's interesting because he had an MO with the women. Like he took very like obviously he took it was saying that he would kidnap these women who were larger obviously because it was easier to get their skin off their bodies um but he right. would you know they were all very physically similar beyond the fact that they were overweight and it's you know he was going for a very specific image and kind of a fixation it's interesting because if it you go with it with you know that he was kind of um repressing homosexuality but had this total fixation on women it's an interesting thing too because you're kind of definitely you're you know there's so much going on um in that psyche in terms of gender and uh gender binaries kind of at war with each other um in your brain um and you know it's like you know desiring a woman desiring a man in two very different ways um for a person yeah there's so and that just i mean there's so much complexity and layers like this throughout the whole movie. It's like a puzzle. Mm-hmm. It's like a maze. Yeah. And you kind of work through it with Clarice, like at the same time. But I don't know. It's really interesting how Jonathan Dem sort of draws you into the world of the characters um, he uses a lot of tracking shots yeah. that I feel like suggests that you're weaving almost through a labyrinth and stuff or whatever. Yeah. Um, usually he'll position the camera behind Clarice and we follow her. We kind of like bob and go, go into corners and we're always like sort of in step with her. We're yeah. moving with her. Spe- it's, he kind of removes spectatorship, which is a thing a lot of people talk about if yeah. you know film. Yeah. Um, because this movie is supposed to be actively, um, going back to the opening sequence, which Miss Mel brought up. Um, it's like a partnered sort of aesthetic. Like we're with her as she jogs through the woods around Quantico. Um, and when she goes into Crawford's office right after that, we follow her through the maze, like in the exact same movement of the camera. 
and that's interesting taking the spectatorship out because again going back to like now that i think about it i feel like so much of don't breathe took from silence of the lambs because that was full of tracking shots that totally removed your ability to be a passive audience member when you were watching it Mm -hmm. um you're just not allowed yeah and it's it's obviously don't breathe use that suspense in a bit more literal manner than this does but that's totally what this is is kind of slow burn suspense like from the very beginning when you're following her around when you're on these tracking shots you're going towards something and it's building and you're not allowed to to feel entirely comfortable with it um which again just harkens back to the fact that this movie is all about energy mood um your emotions your reactions and again too it's kind of it's like what you said at the end where it's like you have to self um analyze when you look at clarice and hannibal's relationship at the end because you're not allowed to not have an opinion on that either because you know you're you're mentally part of this story i completely agree i completely agree with everything you're saying i mean it's all about mood it's all about creating the those kinds of sequences the the effect is chilling yeah you know the claustrophobia of the story we don't just see it we feel it we hear it um the once again the basement scene the sort of climax denouement whatever the maze imagery is back yeah um clarice is in the sight of her prey she's in buffalo yeah, we, bill's sort yeah, of yeah we hole. we look at her through buffalo bill's pov as well through a lot of that shot right yeah we're behind her once again she's twisting she's turning she's hunting she's moving from room to room it's almost like vertigo inducing mm-hmm. um because everything that's communicated by that camera work is is all confusion and frustration and panic um but and it also like it keeps the most important like sort of positional information hidden from us and and Clarice at the same time we don't know exactly where Buffalo Bill is she can't see him in the shadow and the clutter and stuff or whatever it's, so we're not just sympathizing with her having to be down there alone. We're ex- experiencing her fear and at that as well. One thing that's always been big for me across movies, like whether somebody's lost in the jungle, lost in you know a haunted castle, thinks there's a ghost, something like this, something that's always frightened me and the idea like that I would be scared of if I was in this situation, kind of my big thing in horror that would scare me, is you being me being somewhere where there's something else that knows where I am, but I don't know where it is. Um, yeah. Like that. And that's used, uh, you know, it's fun <coughs> in films, like the, you know, the idea that you're, you know, you know, it's in short, it's like your prey and that sort of thing. But just like the very objective idea of something looking at me and I don't know it. Um, or knowing that I'm in a room in a space with something that I don't know where it is, but it knows where I am. Um, and that's totally what that entire basement scene is. Um, and it's so chilling, too, because he has so many moments where he could just grab her. He could just take her out. And he could, he's messing with her. Like, he reaches out. He plays with her hair. Like, it's, you know, and it, it's totally within character because he's such a, you know, like, what is it? What does he want? You know, what does he want out of this? And there's, for him, I feel like, too, if you look at his psychology, like, he's literally, you know, chasing down a, a female. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So... That entire sequence in the dark, in the yeah. dark, um, almost like it's a quest that can't be fulfilled. Yeah, 
you know? So that entire sequence is just brilliant. Unless he cheats. Yeah. Yeah, which he does. He With, puts on you know, night, the night vision he goggles. He puts on night vision goggles. Um, so that entire sequence is just incredibly brilliant. And it comes up a lot in discussions um, for great horror scenes, like iconic horror scenes. Even just in film in general, it's considered like one of the very best sequences um, put together from every, you know, aspect, technical and emotional and narrative. Um, so, yeah. It's flawless, really. It's, yeah. It is. And um, I guess speaking of flawless, let's talk about Anthony Hopkins a little bit. We've yeah. obviously touched on um, his turn as um, Hannibal Lecter. We've mentioned it's the shortest um, – amount of screen time ever to win the best actor Oscar. Um, which is interesting because I don't know, it's in the hands of any other actor, this part could have totally ruined the movie. I feel like if you did it wrong. Yeah. And he doesn't necessarily play it subtle. Um, no, he like, is this, this weird sort of like Truman Capote, Catherine Hepburn hybrid character, but he somehow dominates not only the screen, but the movie. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing is, is he is a supporting character in this film. Like people don't realize, I think when they haven't watched Silence of the Lambs, like it's not about him because they think, Oh yeah. Silence oh, of the Lambs. Yeah. Like he's the killer in Silence of the Lambs. Like, no, he's just there for no, 13 minutes he, like it's about buffalo bill and hunting down buffalo bill um but he totally steals the show um with this just it's very like quiet aggression i feel like because it's not you know it's not subtle it's just very obviously it's like unsettling. a he's like a like a it's like something waiting to pounce yes um you know something that you would never you know taking away the trappings of set aside, even just the mannerisms, how he plays the character, this is not someone you would ever turn your back on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's great writing and direction that helped with that and stuff or whatever. Um, but he does a few of his own switcheroos too, uh, towards the end, uh, when he yeah. escapes from the soldiers and sailors monument. Um, that's another great sequence where they pull a fast one on you. Um, that is a great sequence. And, you know, he's just, he's so crafty. <laughs> he's so a, crafty. And that's really like, gross and I, way. And it's just, he, he's such a fascinating um, character and, and obviously an iconic horror villain. Yeah, he was um, named AFIs. I think he was named number one on their 100 years, yes. 100 villains um, he countdown. number one film villain he which was is ahead not of, just he was ahead of Darth horror Vader. films guys yeah. that's films yeah like all film Hannibal Lecter was he was, was number one the top I think I think he was number one um Darth Vader he out he was in front of Darth Vader Darth he was Vader like was number two or three yeah. um um yeah because but, but it makes sense I mean and I think Anthony Hopkins portrayal is a big part of that oh, um yeah, yeah. He's, you know, he's lurking in the shadows. He's quietly plotting his own freedom. 
Um, but the thing too is, is that his motives are always obvious. Like that's the thing is, is he doesn't, he doesn't lie. He doesn't hide what he wants. Like, you know, from the beginning what he is capable of, what he'd be willing to do. Um, what he wants, Clarice knows he's that. You twitch and shift in your seat the whole time. Yeah, because like, he's very he's, he's brutally honest. Um, yeah, and, and, and staring at you with those like hungry, wide eyes, yeah. Yeah. and which is a great touch to Anthony Hopkins' performance, I think, because it's like a good. I don't know, like he's pushing Clarice to do the same, right? Yeah. And thus viewer to notice what's right in front of you to see yeah um yeah because you also get the sense too that he knows like who buffalo bill is where he is the entire time and he's just choosing why he's doing doing what he's doing and he's just choosing to trickle out this information because he wants to teach clarice clarice i can never say her name a lesson and and you know do that whole protege thing where he's taking under his wing he wants her to think like a serial killer wants her to kind of let that you know, that darkness in to, to get what she wants as well. Um, and he's totally objective on it. He doesn't give a shit if Buffalo Bill gets caught or not. Um, Mm -hmm. but he does care if, you know, if Clarice is willing to do what she has to do to find him in his mind, um, you know, what she would have to do. Uh, yeah, no, totally. It's, it's so interesting. The seeing it and sort of accepting it and like it's right there it's right in front of you what is your role and like I feel like that connects to a lot of people who write about Silence of the Lambs even at the time but especially now um if you read articles they'll talk about um the social commentary Mm, um throughout the film there's a lot of images of that involve the gulf war um the military style night vision goggles. Yeah. Uh, you see the, the U S flag a lot, different symbols of America that keep coming up, usually associated with Buffalo bill or with his house. Um, Buffalo, yeah, post- Buffalo bill himself. I mean, that's, yeah, Buffalo bill. That's the most there's American the- sounding serial killer. <laughs> right. There's that poster that we see at one point that says America, open your eyes. Yeah. Um, and there's all the, all this like patriotic symbolism People have suggested that, you know, the film is suggesting that while America is focused on exterior threats, yeah. like possibly what was happening in Iraq at the time with Saddam Hussein, deeper threats such as Buffalo Bill are emerging domestically. Yeah. And it's interesting, um, even if you take that into consideration with the warring father figures, because Crawford kind of represents the government. He's, you know, he's a government entity. Right. He's the director of the FBI or whatever he is. And, um, there's that. And then there's the, you know, Hannibal's way, which is, you know, he's imprisoned by the government. He doesn't lie to her the way Crawford does. And, um, you know, it's dark and it's gross and it's terrifying, but he's honest and Crawford is not. Yes. And he, I, like, he's the force. He says, look, look inward, look, Mm-hmm. Look away, you know, and, and I think that was a really interesting message at the time. Um, you know, the Cold War, Desert Storm, they were taking attention away from um, domestic issues and stuff or whatever. And then, but you had this crumbling infrastructure at home, especially yeah. in, in the America that's depicted in Signs of the Lambs, like Red State America. Yeah. Um, and then what happens? This horrible sickness. Yeah. 
blossoms in our own backyard. So it's really, really, really interesting. Um, He, because Hannibal Lecter, I think that's what makes him so scary. He is that monster that forms when we look away. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. No, there's uh, like there's so many layers to this film, Um, and it all comes back to Hannibal Lecter, Um, and that's like the thing about this movie is it's Hannibal's movie, Um, even though he's just kind of one background player in it, Um, (laughs) and the only reason he gets top billing is because it's Anthony Hopkins. Well, not top. Did he get top billing? He got he got billed pretty high. He might have been first. you know, and well, I mean, it, it, yeah, I mean, he he's on for what thirteen minutes, but he that was still enough to qualify him for the best actor category. Yeah, and not supporting. Yeah, and not supporting, um, which it's so ballsy of them to think that they submitted him for best actor at thirteen minutes. <laughs> you know, like know. on their part, being like, "Oh, we're gonna try this and see what happens." Um, <clears throat> I know, but it's fucking awesome. But yeah, and. And he is so much the draw, and the relationship with Clarice is so much the draw. The sort of sexual fission. um, That was one of the big things audiences really, really liked. And um, which kind of led to the the, uh, the sequels. They remade Red Dragon. They did Hannibal. Then um, Hannibal Rising well after. Although... um, I never saw Anthony Hopkins those. was not yeah. involved in Hannibal Rising. Um, but the subtext here in what might be a twisted love story is totally lost in, in the rest of the movies from the yeah. franchise. Because it kind um, of becomes um, like a Saw type thing where it's like people just want to see him eating people and killing people. Yeah, and eviscerating them and yeah. hanging them from balconies by their intestines, which he does Yeah, in Hannibal. It's pretty cool. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, but you know, this is so much more interesting to to look at the Hannibal and Clarice's relationship and the complexity and um and he's the only man in the movie to treat Clarice with genuine respect. Yeah. And, and um, look at him. He's, that's he's Lynn, a look at him. I know. Cannibal serial killer and he's the what only does that one. Say? Yeah. What does that mean, you know? <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so it's a really I guess the whole point of us talking about all this is that it deserved its wins yes <laughs> um, even though the academy probably did not have this conversation uh when you know everyone was sending in maybe not at the time right um but yeah, yeah but yeah it um so it won uh the big five um Academy Awards that year, which is Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Screenplay, and Best Director. Um, It was only the third film in the history of the Academy Awards to ever do that. Mm -hmm. Um, The other two being It Happened One Night in 1934 and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 75. And uh, no film has um, been able to do that since Silence of the Lambs Mm. win the big five. So, yeah, pretty cool, pretty important for um, not just horror, but film yeah, in general. Film in general. Um, just why, if you haven't seen it, um, you should definitely check it out. Yeah. 
Um, God, I feel like we got to watch this now when you're here. I know, but it's topical, so it's fine. It's like relevant. Exactly. We have to watch that, and then we're going to watch Beauty and the Beast and talk about how it doesn't make sense. We'll Um, be like, we'll have a little flashback to 1991. 1991 Oscars viewing. Oscars. Yeah, there we go. Let's see. Okay, what else was nominated that year? Robin Hood? Was that nominated that year? Might have been. Robin Hood Men in Tights. You were in Robin Robin Hood. Hood. (laughs) Did you know that? Or was it Robin Hood Prince of Thieves? I forget. Um, They were both movies. I just don't know (laughs) which is which. Okay, let's see. That year, the nominations for Best Picture were Signs of the Lambs, Beauty and the Beast. Bugsy, JFK, and Prince of Tides. Mm. All right, then. So. Yeah. All right, then. Okay. And solid. Solid. So, yeah. What do you think, Ms. Now? Anything else we need to say? Anything burning you want? No, I think we... We, we eviscerated this movie um, quite the ah. same put the the insides on the outside and uh it's a really really good movie and it totally it if one movie was going to be the first horror film to win best picture like yeah so it's the lives is it yeah so it would be nice to see you know i think a lot of people who love horror say well i wish they acknowledged horror more and stuff or whatever i think the problem is that Really good horror these days is being made independently. Yeah, like The Witch. And, and um, not that the Academy doesn't look at independent films, but it's, it's really hard to get their and, attention. Yeah. And it's really, really hard if you're genre independent. Yeah. Um, like The Witch was lucky in that it got kind of a word of mouth buzz that independent horror films don't usually get. Um, and it ended up getting... I think it got a wide release eventually, um, after a while, but, um, yeah. And that's like rare for that even to happen with these, you know, usually you find them on Netflix or because a friend saw it at a film festival once and, and brought it up to you. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's been a good couple years. I think 2012, you had Prometheus nominated, you had Paranorman and Frankenweenie nominated for animated. Mm-hmm. Kurt Norman is so good. Before that, though, I guess Black Swan. Yeah. Um, 10 was nominated for Best Picture, and Natalie Portman won Best Actress. But that's seven years since a horror movie got any major attention from the Academy. So we're due for one, kids. We're due. Let's see. 2017... I don't know. We they, really don't have any good horror movies coming out in 2017. So it might but, be 2018. Um, let's <laughs> hope soon. Let's hope soon. Yeah. You guys, you burgeoning horror filmmakers out there, come on. Make your... Make some good. Make your Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Is it time for me to rattle off the... Rattle it off. Rattling it off. All right. So if you have anything to say, good or bad, you can email us Email us at splatterchatter669 at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at splatterchatter666 um, without the vowels or just search it with the vowels. 
Um, you can find Craig's blog, splatterchatter666.blogspot.com. Um, there we have a Tumblr, which I woke back up recently, splatterchatter.tumblr.com. I think I am going to, in the next day or so, I'm going to compile a list mm-hmm. to the best of my ability of every horror film that ever received an Oscar nomination and put it on the blog. Cool. There you go, kids. Just to have a nice, concise list for you guys. Because we mentioned a lot of them, but I don't think we got them all. Oh, we did not get them all because there's so many technical awards um, out yeah. there that uh, didn't, get, didn't get had. So, um, so I'm going to try and do yeah. that for you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you haven't seen Silence of the Lambs, we've convinced you to watch us. Watch it. Let us know what you think of it. Um, if, you, if we blatantly missed a, a award-winning... Um, horror film which i don't think we did but let us know i hope not yeah um and yeah uh enjoy the oscars we are going to um (laughs) and yeah hopefully sometime in the near future we have a uh a horror film that breaks back up into um out of just critically acclaimed and into award winning into the awards circuit yeah i think it's time Nocturnal Animals well, was kind of close. Um, it didn't end up getting nominated yeah, for, really. for Best Picture, but that was a pretty that was a pretty close, um, almost horror film that uh, got a lot of buzz, and I think was nominated at the Globes at least. And um, what's his face won? Um, uh, Kick Ass, whatever his real name is, <laughs> the guy who was in Kick Ass, who was in Nocturnal Animals, uh, won at the Globes for Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor. Ah, uh, delightful. So, yeah, I wanted to see that. It looked, it looked creepy. Like, like it straddled the line of horror. Yeah, no, it, it very much did. It was very. It's noir. It's like neo noir is like the uh, the genre. So that kind of skirts a little bit close to like thriller, psychological horror film. Um, so yeah, there's that. Let's you know, you know, let's let's keep yeah. the snowball going. Which a lot of people say Signs of the Lambs is not horror and that it's a more of a dark thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, At that point, I think you're just splitting hairs. I, yeah, I've never agreed with that because I feel like the dark tone and the eerie tracking shots and the, the story itself, which is just really twisted. Yeah. And, and it, no, yeah, it's horror. Yeah. It, but, uh, so thanks for listening once again, everybody. Um, get in touch with us. Um, argue with us. Call us out if you want. That's fine too. Yeah, no one does that. <laughs> and um, enjoy the Oscars. We'll see you shortly. Not entirely sure what we're doing next, but we'll figure it out. Don't worry. St. Patrick's um, Day is on the way, and you know what that means. What? <laughs> <laughs> hopefully we don't wait until st patrick's day to do another episode but don't worry no, that's, no, no. that's definitely coming it's coming yes and um until then or before then until the next episode we will say au revoir adios and das for